You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. My name is Jennifer. I'm Kirill Ospova. I'm assistant professor at the Slavic uh, program of the Ger- Department of German Learning and Slavic. And it is a privilege and a huge joy to introduce Andrei Ivanov. Andrei and I are members of the field that is slightly, uh, slowly going almost extinct, which is Studies of 18th Century Russia. Uh, but I am happy to welcome Andrei's book, which today's event is the launch of. I'm going to say, uh, 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 a couple of words about it, but first, Andre is an associate professor of history at the University of Wisconsin Blackville. He specializes in the religious, cultural, and social history of Eastern Europe and the Russian Empire. And his book that we are discussing today, uh, called A Spiritual Revolution The Impact of Reformation and Enlightenment in Orthodox Russia, 1700 to 1836, traces the influence of the Reformation and Enlightenment ideas on the Russian Orthodox Church while drawing on the previously overlooked uh, uh, sources as far away as Halle, Wolfenbüttel, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Rome, and Vatican City. The book has won two book prizes, the 2021 Mark Rife Prize and the 2021 Early Islamic Studies uh, book prizes. So congratulations, Andre, on that. Um, and I will uh, give the floor to Andre. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it that you brave the sunny weather to come here. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to um, uh, just wanted to thank the University of Wisconsin Press for for their support of uh, uh, of uh, this publication. Uh, this book first came out as a uh, in uh, in hardcover, and so it was pretty expensive as a hardcover. But mm-hmm. now it is coming out as a uh, paperback. Which means its uh, its list price is thirty two ninety five, but with a discount that you have here, it's only really thankful to them for that. And so this is their promotional flyer is here, and it has some of the reviews that have been published in Russia, in Europe, in Hungary, in in uh, in in, uh, in Britain and Hungary. But there are also reviews of this book that came out of Germany, reviews of this book that came out of. Um, out of U.S. journals and also Canadian American Slavic Studies. That's a Canadian uh, and U.S. journal. So there's quite a few journals reviewed it, and so I'm, uh, there. There are uh, quite a few book reviews of this work. If you want to read the book reviews before deciding whether you wanna you want to buy it or not. Now I'm going to give you a spoiler uh, today, <laughs> in the sense that I'm covering the subject of this book in some capacity, and so you will. Yeah, yeah, at the end of this lecture, I will, uh, or this presentation, I will yield the floor to questions, any questions that you would have. But I'm going to start with just a basic overview of, uh, of the book's beginning, then, then the Enlightenment era, and then the awakening in the Bible society and the reaction. So the book covers kind of a long 18th century in Russian history. So before I, um, before I start, I want to give a kind of conceptual and contextual overview of, of European Reformation. For many historians, and I should say for many people, Reformation and Enlightenment stand out among the most important 
uh, episodes in, this, in, the, in the rise of Western civilization. A lot of people would argue that Reformation is, is kind of an event that, that, that led to the Enlightenment and therefore helped make European civilization modern or it has essentially inaugurated the age of modernity. Despite the significance of these events, Reformation and Enlightenment, the majority of scholars and students in European history uh, do not look at Russia and do not look at the Orthodox Church in Russia and, and Eastern Europe. Uh, in fact, most textbooks of Reformation don't even talk about Russia. And a lot of textbooks of, of uh, Russian history do not even mention the Reformation. Only a few scholars have written about the impact of these events in Eastern Europe, and even fewer have considered Russia. Now, this presentation is based on my, on my monograph, where I am putting the Orthodox Church in the new context, in the context of European Reformation and in the context of European uh, Enlightenment. So the central argument of this book has already been stated is that Russia's modernizing religious reform was a wide-ranging adaptation of first the European Reformation and later the ideas of the religious Enlightenment. Now, what is a Reformation? Well, gone are the days when um, most people thought about Reformation as a kind of a limited Gallo-Germanic event that started with the knocking or hammering on this door in Wittenberg, right? And ended with a mass in Paris. That's kind of, that, that, that view of Reformation where this is just a, simply just an event in Germany and France and that's it, uh, started in Wittenberg, ended in Paris, is pretty much gone. The majority of scholars of Reformation today look at a very wide uh, range of Reformations that took place in Europe and transatlantic world we have the princely Protestant Reformation, the Radical Reformation, Bohemian Reformation, that's the Hussite movement, Romanian or Transylvanian Reformation. Uh, we have also studies of Jamaican Reformation, the pirates in Jamaica, Catholic Jamaica <laughs> becoming Protestant, right? You have, um, you have Reformation as global secularization thesis. This is Brad Gregory, Stanford Medal of Notre Dame. Reformation as revolutions, even Osman. The timeline of Reformation has fluctuated within historiography. Some have put it as early as 1350. Some have put it as late as 1750. Now, since the Reformation overall is such a, such a broad event that helped bring modernity to European continent, are there some you know, uh, guidances that we could use as some of the sort of defining um, criteria that we could come up with uh, to define Reformation and not let it get too much out of hand. And here are the, the criteria that are actually most uh, applicable to doing this exact task, defining Reformation and confining it to a particular set of events. So it is a religious change with a charismatic reformer involving a theological reaction uh, against or within the early modern Catholicism. So this covers the Catholic and Protestant Reformation and leading to a transition to modernity in strictly chronological or Lutheran sense. You know, the idea of the Protestant work ethic producing the new set, a new development of state, the well-ordered police state. This is Rife coming, but Rife was a Bavarian too. So all these three criteria obviously apply to Russia as well, and I'm going to and apply to Ukraine, and I'm going to talk about this uh, in my talk as well. So, you, so Ukraine and Russia had a charismatic reformer who was reacting against uh, early modern Catholicism and early modern Catholic ideas taking hold and growing and becoming essentially acclimated within the Orthodox Church and then uh, leading the transition to modernity. So, um, before I, uh, I you know, keep using the term reformation or the term reform, 
the question that needs to be answered at the outset, was the term Reformation used during the time when this event was taking place? In other words, am I using this word just by myself, just saying, hey, this is the Reformation, or did people at the time who were witnesses of this event or who were protagonists and antagonists of this event, did they use this term? And my argument is that yes. So you have, um, for example, Pietist minister Christoph Miklitz, who traveled in St. Petersburg, he called it Geistliche Revolution. He looked at this event as very radical, a, a spiritual revolution. You have Peter von Haven from, from uh, uh, Denmark calling this the reformation of the spiritual order. Uh, you have the antagonist of the Orthodox Reformation, Archbishop Vlad Lopatinsky, calling it the introduction of certain Reformation ideas. You have the uh, report of the Sacra Congregazione Propaganda Fide, the Sacred Congregation for Propagation of Faith in Rome, uh, arguing that this whole church reform is introduction of heresies of Luther and Calvin. You also have a report by from Vilnius Jesuit Academy, again, saying that this is not, this is a reformation uh, of the Greeks using that is the bringing less of the religion of the Greeks and more of the religion of Calvin uh, and less sort of schismatic religion. So this is this you know there was a widespread understanding in uh, 18th century Europe and Russia as well that this is a reformation. This is a an event that very much looks like reformation or smells like reformation. I like this term. There's a redolence. Redolence meaning it smells like a reformation. <laughs> so, uh, and I like this book too. This is an, another kind of another book that was written by Johann Peter Kohl, who decided to uh, to write a, a work called calling um, the Greek Church in Russia. They called the Russian Church Greek Church as Lutheran as being Lutheranized, the Lutheranization of the Greek Church. You know, you think that this kind of a title would not be appreciated by the Orthodox hierarchs like Prokopovich, the factual head of the Holy Synod at the time, but in fact, Johann Peter Kohl was rewarded for this work and invited to St. Petersburg to become a member of the Academy of Sciences. So this, the idea of Lutheranization of Orthodox Church was a compliment that was paid to the Orthodox Church. So, um, uh, before I, I move on into the 18th century, 17th century background is something that's very important. And this is the background, in 17th century background is important because this is the time when Catholic influence becomes established within the Orthodox Church in Ukraine at first and then later in uh, Russia. So there are theological changes in Ukrainian Orthodox Church that take place as a result of the influence of Counter-Reformation, also known as Catholic Reformation, and the Union of Brest of uh, 1596 that, that put a lot of pressure on the Orthodox Church in Ukraine to either become Catholic fully or adopt Catholic doctrine in order to uh, resist uh, the uh, onslaught of the Catholic Reformation and to also systematize and organize its curriculum and doctrine. And so theological influences of, of Catholicism in the Orthodox Church included the idea of purgatorial toll gates, the idea of limbo, so in addition, uh, so you have pur in, in, uh, in the early modern Catholicism, you have four places you can go after death. You can go to heaven, hell, you can go to a purgatory or limbo. And so the idea of limbo was also introduced in Ukrainian Orthodoxy, uh, timing of transubstantiation, equivalency of tradition and scripture, devotions were held to sacred heart, Margaret de Cortona, Teresa de Avila, eschatology was introduced that uh, was very much Trinitarian eschatology, uh, based on uh, Thomas Malvenda, uh, a Portuguese Jesuit who argued that the Antichrist will be a Jew from the tribe of death. 
Why was this important? Well, Peter the Great was being accused of, 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 of being an antichrist and by all believers and traditionalists in Russia. So in order for him to, um, uh, to be cleared of that accusation, he called for, for Ukrainian Bishop Yavorsky to write a, uh, a treatise explaining that he's not antichrist. And he used uh, a Catholic understanding that the antichrist will be a Jew from the tribe of Dan and that did not work. The old believers still used that argument saying, well, how do we know that Peter is not a Jew? So he's still the Antichrist. And so this, this, is, uh, this becomes important later on. I'll explain why. Two swords doctrine or two hands doctrine or two powers doctrine is something that was also uh, very much prevalent in, uh, in, this, in the political theology. Uh, you have education. So most Ukrainian and Russian students that went to obtain theological curriculum. They would go to Krakow, they would go to, they would go to Lviv or Lemberg, Olmutz in, in Austrian Empire, Poznan, uh, Padua, Rome, Rome, you know, all these Italian cities would bring in Ukrainian and Russian students who wanted to study theology. Uh, and you have catechism, so you have adaptation of, uh, of uh, Keynesian or Tridentine, as it is known, Paramus Catechismus in Spavidanio Yere of Petro Manila who was the Metropolitan of Kiev in, in Ukraine. And this becomes the official doctrine of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine and then later in Moscow. And this is a tr this is Tridentine division of, of systematic theology as well as content that was introduced in the 17th century. The pinnacle of this Catholic influence was Metropolitan Stefan Liborski, who was a student of famous Jesuit in Poland, Tomasz Mordzianowski, and who uh, really despised uh, Protestants. This is his quote. He called Luther um, a, uh, a uh, vicious thief, Lutvor, and Calvin Kalsvin, meaning pig's excrement. So, you know, this is how much he despised Protestants that he would call Calvin a pig's excrement. So, in the background of the 17th century uh, Catholic influence came a reaction from Theophan Prokopovich, the East Slavic Luther. Prokopovich was born in Kiev in 1677, and um, some argue he was born in 1681, so I'm putting just for now, for the sake of argument, this, this other date, but I believe it was 1677, and have some proof for that, but not part of this presentation. Uh, Prokopovich uh, was born in Kiev in 1695, he goes to Poland, he first studies in Poland, and then he goes to Rome. I have studied his matriculation records in Rome, I worked in the Vatican, I worked in, uh, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, Gregoriana, Pontificia Universitat Gregoriana archives. And so um, he was there for three years. And while in Rome, he didn't have an experience of a charming and beautiful city that probably most of us will, right? If we go to Rome, what kind of experience will, will we have? <laughs> he actually had an experience that was very similar to Luther's. He hated Rome. He found Rome to be very corrupt. And he found papal politics to be incredibly corrupt, he was sickened by all of that. He found access to a secret library, and in that secret library in Rome, he found the writings of Martin Luther. After reading the writings of Martin Luther, the Babylonian captivity of the church, Prokopovich fled uh, from Rome and went into the Swiss Alps, crossed them, uh, and ended up in Germany, where he stayed about three years uh, in the area of Halle, Jena, Leipzig, Enlightenment Triangle. Uh, he stayed for some time in Halle, he stayed for some time in Jena, but his deep, deepest connections were to the University of Jena, actually, where his uh, 
uh, one of his best friends, Johann Franz uh, uh, Deus, uh, was a professor. And he came out of, uh, of uh, Halle and of, out, of out of Vienna with this understanding that uh, he needs to continue uh, his relationship with uh, European pietism. And German pietism in particular became something that uh, very much uh, inspired him. So Prokopovich goes back to Kiev. He, he teaches there for many years. He introduces a lot of uh, revolutionary ideas like heliocentrism. He brings the ideas of Galileo, Bruno, uh, Copernicus. He teaches from Protestant textbooks, not Catholic textbooks. His famous radical reformer reached Tsar Peter I, who invited Feofan into St. Petersburg in 1718 to help promote reform. In St. Petersburg, he would not only be the reformer, but also the chief ideologue or ideologist of Peter I. That's not something that my book is covering. My book is mostly looking at, at theological and religious reforms, but Theofan Prokopovich was much more than religion. For Prokopovich, this new capital of St. Petersburg was a paradise, a paradise, as he called it, because it was a rationally planned city. It was new, it was Western-looking, it was not uh, looking inward. His social life fully reflected Feofan Prokopovich's pursuit of the Petersburger lifestyle. He's a vibrant party-goer, discerning wine connoisseur, daring recreational boater, luxuriant palace builder, libertine Lenten meat eater. His estate brews beer, which becomes a major hit at the court. He loves his beer so much, he dedicates a poem to it. His personal alcohol budget is quite lavish, 509 rubles per year, 305 buckets of vodka per year, which he got annually from his serfs. He employs a large staff. He has gardeners, sailors, rowers, yacht, barge captains. He has private security guards, Ukrainian Cossacks, who hunt down and beat up any cleric that crosses him in the wrong way. So he, he even has a torture chamber that he operates. There's just all kinds of things that he's doing. His lifestyle was part and parcel of what Collis and Zitzer have called the anti-sober order. So uh, he was not doing all that drinking by himself. Uh, he built up a core of reformist clergy, some of whom he brought from Kiev, some of whom were uh, coming separately. Among them, you have here Gavril Uzhinsky, you have Fyodosi Yanovsky here, Fyodosi Krolik. I don't have his, his portrait here. And so they, there are actually quite a few sympathizers in St. Petersburg. They're all, most of them were living in St. Petersburg that were part of this core of, of uh, Fyofan's uh, circle. Now, as a part of his reform, of course, uh, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, factional struggle. And this is, you know, with any reform, you're going to have factional struggle. And you also have people who are reporting on, on his lifestyle and reporting on his changes and so on. So I'm going to give you a couple of quotations. Uh, this is the reaction of one of the Orthodox uh, uh, noblemen from Novgorod diocese who wrote a report on Theofan Prokopovich uh, in the 1730s. So he says, Theofan surpassed his uh, former ally Theodosi in many crimes during his office as the Bishop of Pskov. He looted monasteries and holy churches for his sacrilegious gluttony and used the income for his, of his diocese for the luxuries not fit for the monastic calling. For example, he stripped the gold and silver off the icon frames and then shipped them to Riga in exchange for just a few bottles of foreign alcohol. Archbishop Fiofan is a rabid iconoclast and church thief. He also eats meat during Lent and all other fasts. And in fact, Theophan's violation of fasts is so great that in his meat eating, Theophan even surpassed his ally, the Bishop of Verzai, who eats meat habitually uh, all the time. So this is kind of like a, an orthodox reaction from a local nobleman in his diocese. 
And here's the Protestant reaction uh, to Prokoporus. Just as Martin Luther, by God's grace, uh, uh, God's help could overcome his obstacles, so he hoped that little by little the Lord's favor would one time fall upon the Eastern Church. So literally, the Lutheran observers of this event were saying, this is just like, you know, Luther. Maybe, you know, Russian church will change, and this is going in the right direction. So two very different observations. Now, new official theology that Prokopovich promoted was known as uh, Doctrina Sacra Godierna, or Holy Modern Doctrine. And uh, it included a lot of elements of uh, Protestant, uh, Protestant uh, uh, theological understanding that uh, were incorporated into the curriculum and the later teaching of the Orthodox Church. Among them, law anthropology, which is the teaching of total depravity, sola scriptura, uh, sola fide justificans, the justification by faith only, uh, forensic justification, or justification of the court, uh, good works for salvation were necessary uh, in fructo, not in actum, meaning you, know, you have to have good intentions, and intention to do good, not necessarily to do good itself for salvation. Loyalty to one's civil calling, duties, and work ethic was necessary for salvation. Parts of ceremonial and moral law were declared to be unbearable yoke. Orthodox believers were urged to ease their conscience and rely on justification by faith, not works for salvation. So if, if they are really worried about you know, being drunk all the time, you know, just don't worry about it. Just work, you know, try to focus on something else, like, like uh, doing you know, your duties and so on. Eschatology, and this is again coming back to that, to that issue. Pope is the Antichrist, not a Jew from the tribe of death. Now, why is this important? Well, remember Peter the Great was being accused of, of, uh, of uh, being an Antichrist, right? And that whole idea of Antichrist being a Jew from the tribe of death didn't work out for Peter. People would still accuse Peter of, of being an Antichrist. So now Prokopovich is adopting Luther's argument that actually the Pope is Antichrist. The Antichrist will not come. The Antichrist has already come. You see, if the Antichrist has already come, there cannot be two Antichrists. You cannot have two Antichrists. You only have one, and that's the Pope, and he's in Rome. Therefore, Peter the Great is no longer the Antichrist. You know, the case <laughs> closed. So um, this is very, you know, this is very much part of the new eschatology. You have the natural theology rejection of geocentrism, lifting heresy charges against Galileo, and so on. So, uh, political theology of Prokopovich abolished the Catholic doctrine of two swords or two hands. Uh, so, two powers, secular and uh, sacred power, is, are now merged into one. You have abolition of Byzantine separation between imperium and sacerdotum, or tsarstvo svechenstvo. The state was now part of the sacred realm. Uh, the, there's abolition of diarchy of tsar and patriarch. In fact, uh, patriarchy uh, and the office of the patriarchate was seen as kind of papist by Prokopovich, and he would condemn it as saying, you know, this is imitation of the popes. And so patriarchate was abolished in 1741 and remained abolished until 1917, late 1970s, early 1980s. You have also prohibition of Spanish-style, Catholic-style preaching that was popular in Ukraine but became popular in Russia. And so now all sermons since 1721 would have to be delivered in Puritan uh, style known as measures monotone. By the way, if you heard about Jonathan Edwards, the sinners in the hands of angry God, that was delivered in measured monotone. So that fa famous sermon, that was the Puritan style of teaching, which was now introduced, the preaching was now introduced in Russia. Now, it's one thing to teach all these ideas. It's another thing to make them mandatory for you know, the regular Vanya and Vasya in the village to learn it. And this is exactly what Prokopovich did and the church did by adopting Martin Luther's catechism uh, to Russian language, 
and publishing it as the catechism, also known as the primer, because it contained also the grammar book on how to read. And so these books became mandatory reading all over um, Russia, and it was the most published, really, the most published book in the, in the, throughout the 18th century by volume of all ecclesiastical books was the primer or Pierre So this work was based on Luther's catechism. It had a lot of uh, Protestant borrowings uh, and definitions uh, in it on, on parental authority, on questions of salvation, icon veneration, and much more. In fact, some of the studies I've seen um, talking about, for example, the origin of, uh, of uh, Duhaborse and other sort of iconoclastic sects in, in Russia in the late 18th century, the late 18th century, come back to this. The peasants reading this and, and taking it very seriously. Um, in addition to uh, publishing the catechism that became widely distributed all over Russia and even you know villages and so on, Prokopovich is also responsible for writing the spiritual regulation or Duhovny Reglament. Now, what was the spiritual regulation all about? Well, it was all about imitating the German and, and Swedish uh, synodal consistorial model, which organized the church through this idea of Kirchen Regiment or Kirchen Ordnungen. This is very common in Protestant lands to have a regulation that standardized and uh, essentially fully organized the affairs, the spiritual affairs within that land, within that country. And so here you have an example of. Uh, Kirchen Ordnung from, uh, from Hesse. The original publication date was 1574. This is a later version that was also that was published in 1724. But the idea was to standardize everything. How many visitations should bishop have? Uh, what kind of consistories should be established? And Russia had not only synod, but also consistories that were established in each diocese. How do you, you, know, how do you run these schools and so on? So it's uh, the, the spiritual regulation um, was very much a, an effort in that direction. Now, as a result of uh, this change, we have the sacralization of the state and secularization of the church. In fact, these reforms made the state more sacred and the church was, became more secular. If Russian Orthodox Church no longer had a patriarch and the administration of the church was now patterned on the Swedish consistorial model, who would be the head of this new church? You know, the church needed a symbolic head, even if it just was a symbol. And so this is where Prokopovich drew from uh, the ideas of Danish absolutist uh, Dietrich Theodor Reinking, as well as the writers of the so-called Jus Reformandi, the Reformation Law in 17th century Germany, who argued that uh, the emperor uh, at the time, the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany, uh, should be also the supreme priest, Pontifex Maximus, of the German church. Now, the problem with that was that the uh, Holy Roman emperors in Europe were Catholics, and the title Pontifex Maximus was reserved for the popes in the, in the Catholic church. You, you know, an emperor could not be Pontifex uh, Maximus. So the German Lutherans, who were dreaming about having their own supreme priest as an emperor, well, they couldn't, get, they couldn't have one, not until 1888. But before that, they didn't have their own Pontifex Maximus. Well, the Russian church didn't have that problem. So what Prokopovich did is that he first proclaimed uh, Peter as the emperor. This is the first proclamation of emperor outside of Holy Roman Empire, really, and outside of uh, Eastern Roman Empire. And then he also proclaimed Peter to be the supreme priest of the Russian church. So you have the sacralization of the state. But with that, you also have secularization of the church. So for example, uh, Prokopovich introduced the utilitarian ethos 
uh, with the idea of vocatio or beruf, the idea that there should be a calling and that if one is faithful to that, that calling, that person would be saved. Now, what this, I, what this uh, theology did was it um, destroyed a lot of motivations for monasticism. You see, before that, if you're a monk, you're hoping that you're going to get, you know, score some extra points in your journey to heaven, right? But what Prokopovich argued is that monks don't get any points, any, any extra points. A monk is saved doing his duties as a monk just as much as a soldier is saved fulfilling his duties. All employments are equal in the eyes of God. Being a monk is just a job. A hangman, this is using Luther's analogy, Luther used the, the idea of a hangman, uh, is saved as long as he's doing his job, hanging people. So being a monk or a priest is just another job. It's no different than hanging people or being a soldier or selling ice cream or whatever. You know, this is all... You know, all these employments are equal in the eyes of God, and you're saved by being faithful to that employment. Prokopovich argued, by the way, that, for example, prayer is a sin. If a person using prayer to avoid work, so you have a job to do, and instead of working, you go pray, uh, well, you know, you're, 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 actually, you're actually committing a sin. Your work or your vacation is more important. Fasting is a sin if, for example, you get angry due to caloric deficiency. So in order to avoid being angry, stop fasting. So this is the kind of ideas that he starts, you know, pro, he starts preaching and saying, you know, those who argue that monks pray as their job, well, then everyone prays. What benefit does this bring to society? <laughs> Utilitarian ethos becomes uh, part of a public theology of the Orthodox Church. Now, what does this do to the monasteries in Russia since, you know, being a monk is no different than being a hangman? Well, you have re-education of purpose. Monasteries and convents become economic enterprises, educational institutions, and jails. You have militarization of monastic living, draft collection centers, veteran retirement homes, and so on. So these are what these are new purposes of the monasteries. You have elite monasteries in Moscow and Saint Petersburg, but these elite monasteries become essentially schools for teaching uh, for teaching Enlightenment theology and Protestant theology not really promoting feats of piety or asceticism. Uh, you also have a new generation of bishops who are called emancipated monks. This is a term from Znaminsky, who argued that these, uh, these monks no longer have to fulfill any ascetic duties. You become a monk, and two years later, you become a bishop just by you know, studying theology and being good at, at your education. So by 1750, over half of all monastery economies and heavens are not monks and nuns but retirees, military personnel, prisoners, workers. In 1724, you know, about 25,000 monks and nuns. 1739, the figure is 14,000. In 1700, you have a total of 1201 monastic institutions. By 1738, you have 624 monastic institutions. And then by 1764, you have 385 monastic institutions. So the number of monasteries is declining rapidly. 1810, when Russia annexes uh, Lithuanian, uh, Belarusian, Polish, and Ukrainian lands, um, you actually have slightly more monastic institutions, but that's because those Orthodox monasteries in Belarus, Lithuania, or, or Western Ukraine are now uh, part of the Russian Empire. But then you have growth of mon monasticism that Patrick Michelson, for example, wrote about, and so it, the number goes up in the late 19th century as a result of that. There's also war on miracles. Uh, a lot of miracles are deemed superstitious and you know, supernatural is, is, is now uh, being examined more clo closely. You have prohibitions on new icon styles, 
statues, uh, item styles are prohibited, or any Catholic style items are prohibited. Uh, there, there's actually even new architecture and new design within the churches. I can show you some, uh, if you want to ask me Q&A, what churches or what icons look like during this time. Prohibitions and publications of miracles of recently dead clerics. Uh, restrictions on new saint canonization. So you have this kind of war on the miracles. And this is kind of important because Prokopovich in his, in his book on Pontifex Maximus argues that if the emperor is sacred, then this is the biggest miracle ever. And therefore, we don't need any more miracles. Because our miracle is Peter the Great, or Catherine I, or Empress Elizabeth. These emperors become miracles, and therefore, we don't need any miracles anymore. And so you have fewer and fewer miracles, and you have fewer saint canonizations. There's actually only two canonizations of saints in the whole century. Dmitry Rostovsky and Teodosi uh, Totimsky, the Totma. Now, compare this to the Rasputin era the era of miracles, you know, under Rasputin, there were miracles galore everywhere, you know, miracles coming out of all different places. <coughs> Seven canonizations just in the era of, of, uh, of Nicholas II. So this is kind of, compare this few decades, these few decades <coughs> with a whole century. Now what happens with this, with this reform is that it produces a new generation of Russian bishops who are very pro-Western, very emancipated, as I, as I mentioned before. Uh, they become very much conversant with Russia's enlightenment. After 1730, virtually no Ukrainian or Russian clergy receive education in Catholic universities or colleges. Instead, they go to places like Göttingen, they go to places like Leiden, they go to Oxford, they go to Halle, they go to Kiel, and so on. And so a lot of the Orthodox bishops are educated there. I'll give you an example, Simon Todorsky, who was a Cossack who studied with Prokopovich and then went to Halle. Uh, where he translated pietist literature into Russian language. When, when he comes back from Halle to Russia around 1742, um, he becomes the third ranking bishop in the Russian Orthodox Church. And he is charged with converting uh, Catherine, who at the time was Fike or uh, Sophia von Anhaltzerbst, uh, converting her to the Orthodox Church. When he converted her to the Orthodox Church, she wrote in a letter to her mother that she doesn't see any difference between Lutheranism and Russian Orthodoxy. So this is kind of what happens when these bishops go and study in Germany and then come back and they, and they are in charge of uh, the uh, Orthodox Church. Now, th during this time, the later half of the 18th century, this is when the Russian Orthodox Church becomes very much conversant <coughs> with religious enlightenment in Europe. And there's actually quite a few books on religious enlightenment and um, uh, David Sorkin uh, has popularized the subject very much and has really, uh, really discovered, you know, his, his book is considered to be kind of the standard go-to book for religious enlightenment in Europe in the English language. You also have Alfred Beutel on Catholic enlightenment. Here's uh, Ulrich Lehner's work. So there's actually, you know, quite a bit of religious enlightenment that's uh, taking off in Europe during this time. And how does Orthodox enlightenment fit? into the European context. Well, um, here are some of the features of the Orthodox Enlightenment. Uh, first, you have the new generation of Russian bishops who are actually very young. A lot of them are in their 30s. Um, few of them come from landed gentry. You actually have bishops coming from lower classes, including serfdom, uh, who become bishops. Uh, you have promotions of wigs, face powder, theater attendance, French language. French becomes very popular in the church. Uh, rise of neology and Newtonian physical theology. So neology was kind of a German version of 
Newtonian physical theology, this idea of enlightenment theology, the reconciliation of faith and reason. And by the way, this reconciliation of faith and reason during the Enlightenment is 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 really holding on until Darwin. So you know, from roughly from the Enlightenment to Darwin, you have neurology and Newtonian physical theology. Pietist theology is taught in the seminaries. Proliferation of moderatist preaching inspired by John Philipson. You have mandatory parish reading that Holy Synod assigns to Russia's dioceses, rural dioceses, and that includes Jacques So in the regular Vanya or Vaisen villages now have to listen to the sermons of Jacques Sohan, Salomon Gessner, and Lorenz Mosheim, the Chancellor of Göttingen in the provincial dioceses. The promotion of utility of godliness, the critique of serfdom, association with abolitionist circles, and so on, and assignment of secular enlightenment books to the seminary. So I'll give you some, some uh, examples of uh, various uh, bishops and kind of their engagement with enlightenment. So here you have Evgeny Bolkhavitin of the future Metropolitan of Kiev, who uh, taught in, uh, in, uh, in seminaries in uh, kind of central Russia. Um, he assigned such readings as Johann Mosheim and, and Rambach in his, in his uh, uh, um, curriculum, but he also promoted secular enlightenment authors in his, uh, in his uh, seminary teaching. For example, he, um, he praised Voltaire, Corneille, François Fenelon, Louis Coquelet, Logier de Tassy, and of course Mirabeau and famous Fontenelle, among many others. Um, he conversed in French regularly, not only with the nobility, but also with the seminary students and the city's clergy. And this was in Voronezh. Think about the Batushka in Voronezh is walking around the street, and he's talking to the, to the Batushka only in French. He was promoting the speaking of French. Um, and uh, by the way, if you want to see what the students in the seminaries looked like, here are seminary students. You know, look at the wigs, face uh, powder, and so on. And uh, so this is this is a different century. Uh, among the long list of um, enlightened bishops is also Feofilak Trusanov, the bishop of Kaluga, who deserves a special mention. He was called gentleman or gentleman among the bishops. He was fluent in French and secular culture. The contemporaries called him Russian Brienne after the uh, liberal pro-Republican Archbishop of Revolutionary France, Etienne Charles de uh, Brienne. Uh, Rusanov did not only translate Western literature into Russian, but instructed his seminary students to read D'Alembert, Racine, Montesquieu, and so on. He was also the first to introduce the teaching of Immanuel Kant's system in Russia and insisted that every good Russian clergyman must learn French. Of course, the elephant in the room among the enlightened bishops is Platon Levshin, or Levshin, the Metropolitan of Moscow. And he is on you know, the cover of my book here, surrounded by cupids and, uh, and the uh, muses. So uh, Levshin exemplified and embodied the image of an enlightened and Western-looking prelate, the archetype of what Znaminsky called the liberal monk uh, of the orthodox uh, religious thought. Um, he's well known for his contribution to Orthodox theology by introducing the, uh, uh, the Westminster Catechism into the Russian Orthodox Church. His Pravoslavne Uchenia is based on Westminster Catechism, which is a standard of Reformed doctrine composed in Edinburgh and at Westminster in 1648. Father Plato, as people called him, foreigners called him, liked Protestant theology, but he also demonstrated a number of enlightened views. Much like Prokopovich before him, Levshin was skeptical of the authority of the Holy Fathers. For him, their writings contained, quote, fables, legends, and mistakes, and were written with a lack of enlightenment. 
end of quote. His enlightened disposition was also present in his relation to political theories. Platon read Voltaire, Rousseau, Helvetius, and discussed them in high society. He was very also much uh, a fan of social contract theory by uh, Rousseau. Platon's reputation as a liberal monk even manifested itself in the critique of serfdom. Much like Radishev and other liberals of the time, Platon criticized the plight of privately owned serfs, compared their treatment to murder, and maintained that peasants ought to have the right to sue landowners in court. His association with Novikov's abolitionist circle in Moscow nearly caused him to face a uh, charge of political sedition. Politically, his ideas went even further. He showed his sympathy for British pol politics by wishing that the clergy in Russia had the same freedom of political affiliation in the British Parliament. He told uh, British visitor uh, Lord Cathart of, uh, of Kolkata that it would be much better had we a constitution like England, end of quote. He also expressed a lot of sympathy for Napoleon and Napoleonic constitutional system. Now, this respect for Napoleon, I have been told, is one of the main obstacles to the canonization of Platon Levshin in Moscow today. They would not canonize him like they canonized Filaret Drozdov, for example. Although, if you read War and Peace, you might have noted that admiration for Napoleon was quite common in uh, the post-Tilsit, pre-1812 Russia. So, because he died in 1812, pre-1812 Russia, there is a lot of people who actually had admiration for Napoleon. The abolitionism of the church, however, had a background. In 1763, Russia's, in 1764, Russia's enlightened hierarchs like Dmitry Sichonov and Gavril Petrov supported the idea of abolishing church and monastic, quote, ownership of the souls, end of quote. So when the church used enlightenment ideas to speak openly about this topic, they were doing so with a clear consciousness because after 17, conscience, after 1764, the church owned no souls. So uh, Dmitri, for example, here, uh, Sichonov of uh, Novgorod was called uh, by Catherine to Voltaire. She called him neither an oppressor nor a fanatic, completely rejected the two powers thesis. He, he had enlightened views on abolition of serfdom. He roared like a riot, like a lion in the Holy Synod, uh, the liberation against Arsenius Matsevich, and he supported the quote, orderly and enlightened February 1764 manifesto freeing the church from the burden of administering the service. So some of the numbers that are important here for the emancipation of 1764 um, uh, to understand this. So church was the second largest serf owner in the empire. Yes, the second largest. 69% of the monasteries and 36% of the convents owned serfs. You have largest uh, serf owners among the monasteries was uh, St. Trinity, St. Sergius Monastery. Um, you have also the um, Rostov bishopric, which owned 55,000 male peasants. That's the largest among the bishoprics. You have the total ownership of over 1 million male serfs living on the land roughly the size of Indiana. Serf rebellions were breaking out all the time. You had attacks on the monks and the nuns. For example, 1763, the um, uh, Orenburg peasants were, were uh, carrying uh, oak bats, dubine, and this was called Dubinchina uprising, and they were attacking the nuns because the nuns were, were forcing the peasants to brew beer for them and to do all kinds of corvée or forced labor. So the peasants were fed up with that, and they were beating up on nuns. The nuns called the, the army. The army killed the peasants and so on. And so this was going on, on all the time. Now, as a result of the emancipation, 
forced labor was no longer uh, you know, was, was replaced with an annual tax, which means you, you know, the nuns and monks don't have to force peasants to do work for them. The peasants just pay a tax. And this was a reasonable tax, and the church received the budget allocation and salaries from the state. The state collected the tax on behalf of the church. Some dioceses fared better than the others. Usually, if the diocese had poor soil, then um, the diocese fared better because of this reform. Uh, church gained higher moral ground and became kind of an advocate for peasants. Uh, there, was, there were literacy campaigns. There were bishops' pharmacies and so on. Uh, there were encouragement of the... For example, the church became an advocate for defending the manorial serfs against abuses by their lords, and also um, very much promoted holy days, meaning that the, that the manorial lords cannot force their peasants to work on Sundays and holy days. And so there are all kinds of sort of work that uh, the, um, the church was doing. And the final part of my book discusses the process of scriptural vernacularization and the Bible Society movement in Russia. So just like Protestants and European Enlighteners, the Reformed bishops of the Russian Empire believed that biblical texts and biblical manuscripts should be approached rationally and critically. So there's an idea of textual criticism. There's an idea of sort of a philological criticism. And uh, so this is something that becomes very wide, widespread in the uh, Bible Society movement. And the idea now is to translate the Bible from Church Slavonic to vernacular Russian, Tatar, Ukrainian, Chuvash, and other languages. So I'm going to um, um, show you, here is the first attempt at revision of the Bible. This is Empress Elizabeth. She's being blessed by Peter and Catherine here in heaven. So this revision and the translation of the Bible kind of has deep roots. Since I'm out of time, I'm just going to go very quickly here. Um, the uh, key bishop of this era, the Bible Society movement, is um, Filaret Drozdov, uh, who, in, uh, who um, um, uh, becomes, who was a metropolitan of Moscow, but before that he was called as a theological Jacobin, an oppositional hierarch by Alexander Herzen. He was also compared to Carbonari of Mazzini. He promoted mystical theological ideas of, of Swedenborg and Eckharthausen. He was listed as number 36 in membership of, of the Masonic Lodge. He promoted Masonic Lodge membership among the Russian bishops. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Russian Bible Society, and this Bible Society becomes very important because um, it, uh, it teaches a lot, you know, it, it spreads the ideas of vernacularization to Russians, to Crimean Tatars, Moldavians, Armenians, Mongolians, Kalmuks. It spreads you know, the idea of vernacularization all over the empire. But he also, Metropolitan of Moscow, composed the scriptural textbook for the Lancaster schools. The Lancaster schools are important because uh, there are about 213 of them. They are founded by the Quakers, but they, um, but they are uh, stationed in these, uh, in these military garrisons where you have Pavlovsky Regiment, Semyonovsky Regiment, Preobrzezhsky Regiment. And what they do with, with, this, with this curriculum, they not only use Filaret uh, of Moscow, who, by the way, would become a revered figure among the Decembrists, but they would also teach George Washington. The ideas of George Washington, Mirabeau. And so the idea of Bible society becomes very much intertwined with the idea of opposition to tyranny, opposition to monarchy. Um, constitution, they, they teach the word constitutse actually in these schools. They teach constitutse and all kinds of other uh, things. So what happens with, uh, with this movement of enlightenment? Well, um, there was a reaction in 1825 with the Decembrist uprising. And then you have the military officers who decided to take the spiritual affairs into their own hands. So the idea 
uh, that comes out after 1812 and then later after, you know, later in the 1820s is that you have several military men uh, in, you know, in high power who have an anti-enlightenment conversion and they decide that the church has gone too far. The church is too progressive, the church is too liberal, and we need military might to sort of to correct these affairs. So you have here Nikolai Tatasov, Alisei Archev, Uvarov, you have also Shushkin here. They accuse the Holy Synod of being spiritual Napoleon, Sodom and Gomorrah, desolation and abomination of the holy place. And then they also come up with a calculation from the point of when the world is going to end. So that's where my book ends, 1836. And the calculation of the world's end is uh, the, the prophetic number 12 by, you know, divide, uh, by three times, which is, a, which is a sacred number. And so you have 1812 and 1824 that goes into the Bible Society and then 1836. By the way, a lot of people, a lot of Protestants and Catholics also believe that the world is going to end in 1836. So after this, the Orthodox Church, there's a major counter-reform against the Orthodox Church. Some of those ideas remained alive in the seminaries. A lot of this goes underground. How radical were the seminaries and underground Orthodox theologians in the later half of the 19th century, something that Gregory Fries has written about. But it is worthy to note that both Joseph Stalin and Anastas Mikoyan learned about radicalism and Marxism while studying in the seminaries. So the roots of this, of this radicalism in the seminaries in the 19th century and you know, all the way up to 1917 go very deep indeed, and you can learn about them from my book. Thank you very much. I will see you.